Well, I never know who's going to be here on a uh, holiday weekend. Uh, you are the, uh, the few, the proud, the remnant uh, here today. It's good to see you. Glad, glad you're here this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 1 John near the end of your Bible, before the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at 1 John uh, chapter 1, be reading verses 5 through 10. We'll jump around a little bit this morning. We'll put the rest of the verses on the screen for you, so you don't have to try to find them quickly. We'll read here in our Bibles, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Let's go ahead and pray before we read. Father, the, the, Apostle, the Apostle Paul says in the Bible, I boast in my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Father, I would just freely confess I've um, <laughs> too many times in my life not wanted to boast in my weaknesses, but in my strengths. And I've hid my weaknesses. And I thank you, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that, that your ways are different. And as your children, we are called out of darkness. Uh, we are called uh, into the light, to the place where we're able then to just freely acknowledge and boast in our weaknesses. But surprise, uh, surprise, it's in that place when the power of Almighty Jesus rests upon us. So, Father, I just thank you. This is uh, an opportunity for this opportunity this morning for me to boast in my weaknesses. And I just trust, Father, that as I do, the power of Christ might rest upon me. The power of Christ that would change and transform me. The power of Christ that would work through me to minister to others here today. Father, I acknowledge I can do nothing in and of myself. I have five loaves and two fish here. But Jesus, you are able to take the five loaves and two fish into your hands, break them, bless them, and feed the multitudes with them. So I ask that you would. Thank you for your love for us. Praise you, bless you, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 5. It's Apostle John. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Amen. Well, most of you know now that my wife and I recently returned from a 12-week sabbatical uh, with our kids. Just a very kind and gracious gift from our church family to us. We thank you for it. That was a life-changing gift uh, for us. God did some amazingly deep work in our souls during that time. Not always easy, uh, but it was so good in, in the end. And for a couple of Sundays here, I'm just kind of doing a little bit of a sabbatical overflow. Just kind of sharing with you some of the ways that Jesus ministered to us. I'm not trying to go in depth uh, with all the verses we look at. We typically preach through books of the Bible. I'm not doing that right now. Just sharing some simple thoughts with you the way the Lord ministered to us. I trust that as as I share, he will minister to you. And the thing we started thinking about last week and will continue to think about today is this idea of knowing yourself. Who are you? 
God created you very uniquely in your mother's womb. He gave you a very unique physical makeup. I can tell by looking out here. There's no one on this planet who has the exact same DNA as you do. He gave you a very unique personality and temperaments and, 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 and giftings. God stamped his image on you in a very, very unique way. No one else has even the same fingerprint as you. And no one then for sure has the same entire physical, emotional, and spiritual makeup as you. If God creates every single snowflake to be unique, then how much more does God create every human being to be Unique. You were created by God to be very unique. And Christians for for 2,000 years, Christians have recognized the importance of getting to know your true self as created by God. The the importance of a healthy self-knowledge. God wants you to know who he created you to be. God wants you to know who you have now become. John Calvin's statement, I put it up on the screen last week, he said this, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. God doesn't just want you to get to know Him, God wants you to get to know yourself. For St. Augustine's famous prayer, he said this, grant Lord that I may know myself in order that I might know thee. And there is a sense in which you cannot really know God all that well until you actually start to know yourself. St. Augustine said this in his confessions. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? How can you know God and worship God when you don't know yourself at all? Christians have recognized for years the importance of getting to know yourself. Not this morbid introspection where you're just navel-gazing, just looking at yourself your entire life. Not talking about that. I'm talking about a Holy Spirit-directed self-understanding. Gaining knowledge about the self God created you to be and who you now are. And listen, a lot of Christians today, they don't know anything about this inward journey to get to know themselves. We understand the upward journey to get to know God, the outward journey to get to know other people. We don't understand the inward journey to get to know this person that God created. You've been given the gift of selfhood. God has given you a gift and we neglect it as if it's evil to to, to find out what God has created here. And it's not. And the problem is, when you don't really know as a Christian who God created you to be, when you don't really know who you now are, that can cause all kinds of of problems. Another quote I gave you last week, David Benner, he says this, Though there has never been any serious theological quarrel with this ancient Christian understanding of knowing ourselves, it has been largely forgotten by the contemporary church. We have focused on knowing God and tended to ignore knowing ourselves, and the consequences have often been grievous. Marriages betrayed, families destroyed, ministries shipwrecked, and endless numbers of people damaged. It is just so important to have a healthy, holy Spirit-led knowledge of your true self. And on sabbatical, God definitely took Molly and me on a bit more of this inward journey, helped us to get to know ourselves better. That is not an easy journey because you don't always like what you see, but it is such a good journey to know now who you are. And it's already paid huge dividends in in our marriage and and in our family. I trust that what, what God did in us this summer will also pay huge dividends here in our church family. And last Sunday, and again today, I'm just kind of overflowing a little bit on this idea of knowing yourself. Who are you? We started last week with the theme of love. When you think about who you are, the the place where you must begin, uh, the most important thing to know about yourself by far is that you are loved. The God who created you very uniquely, he loves you very, very 
deeply. He loves all human beings without exception, but those who actually turn to Christ and trust in Christ, he loves them especially well. He loves all people, but he loves his own people with a very special kind of love. The God who created you loves you very much. A relentless, tender, gentle, compassionate love for you. Knows all about you. Understands all about you. Embraces all about you. If you didn't hear the sermon from last week, I would encourage you to go online and, and watch the video because when you think about yourself, who are you? Who did God create you to be? The most important thing you must know about yourself by far is that you are loved. And, and the second thing then I'd like to think about with you today is this. A second thing you must know about yourself, who are you? Well, you are also a sinner. You, 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 you are deeply loved by the God who created you, but you are also a deeply broken, deeply flawed sinner. Even, even Christians, people who are now united to Jesus by faith, Christians are still sinners. We see it in 1 John 1. John right there, we just read, he is speaking to Christians there. And if you look again at what John says there in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, Christians, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then look down at verse 10. He, he just hammers it home. If, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Christians still have sin. This indwelling sin. All human beings are sinners. Romans 3.23 says this simply. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And man, the really good news then is that Jesus Christ came for sinners. Uh, he didn't come for good people. Uh, no, he came for sinners. And if you're willing to acknowledge yourself as a sinner, you're willing to come to Jesus for mercy today and cling to him just with a simple childlike faith, guess what? There's room at God's table for you. <laughs> he saves sinners. If you think you're good and getting to heaven on the basis of your goodness, well, there's not yet a seat at the table for you. Uh, it is for sinners. And the second you acknowledge your sin and cling to Jesus for, 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 for mercy, you, you're forgiven of all your sin. And you continue to sin. <laughs> Who are you? You are a deeply loved, deeply flawed, deeply broken sinner. That's who you are. And, you know, I think most Christians probably understand this sin part about themselves. I actually think most Christians are more sin conscious than they are love conscious. We think, who are we? And we say, man, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Yeah, sin is secondary. God loved you before you were ever born. God created you out of love. You're loved and then you sin. Love is primary. Who are you? Loved, loved, loved. And yes, you are a sinner, a loved, deeply flawed, deeply broken sinner. I think Christians, though, understand this idea that, that we're sinners. But, 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 but here's the thing, and here's the thing I want to get at today. I think we need to understand you are a very unique sinner. <laughs> very unique. You, you sin in very unique ways. I actually believe that no other person in the world sins exactly like you and for the exact same reasons as you. You, you. you are a very unique person even in the way and the reasons why you sin. You're a snowflake. Even in your sin, you're a snowflake. <laughs> Man, that's fantastic. And at some point in time, listen, as a Christian, listen, if you really want to know yourself well, you really need to come to a deeper understanding of your unique sinfulness, of your unique brokenness, your unique flaws. 
I think a lot of Christians still have a very superficial understanding of their own sin. I think a lot of Christians, when they think about their sin, uh, all they really see are, are the different superficial sins that they commit on a daily basis. When, when, when Christians confess sin to one another, that's typically what they tend to, to focus on. The, the sins they committed yesterday or, or last week. I was impatient with my kids. I was lazy on the weekend. Yeah, I cut some corners at work. And man, it is so good to see the certain sins you're committing on a daily basis. So good to confess those sins. But listen, please. Our sin goes much deeper than that. Behind every single surface sin in your life, behind every single bad fruit in your life, there is a very deep heart root. There is always a very deep reason why you commit the sins that you do. There's a very deep reason always why you do what you do. There's a deep heart reason why you were impatient with your kids. Lazy on the weekend. Cut corners at work. And listen please, your deep heart roots can be very different than mine. You and I might both be impatient with our kids for very different reasons. Very different heart roots behind that sin of impatience. And you can confess the sin till the cows come home, but that, that is good. And never see the root behind the sin. I think a lot of Christians never do really see their deep heart roots. I think we see our surface sins. And please hear me on this. If that is all you ever see when it comes to your sin, you do not know yourself very well yet at all. You don't know yourself. You don't know yourself very well at all. And, and if that's you, it will be difficult for you to be transformed quickly into the image of Jesus. David Binner says this, If all we know about ourselves is the specific kind of external sins we commit, our self-understanding remains superficial. Focusing on these kind of external sins leads to what Dallas Willard describes as the gospel of sin management. It leads to a resolve to avoid those external sins and it leads to a resolve, to a strategy to deal with guilt when this inevitably proves unsuccessful. Next slide. But he says Christian spiritual transformation is much more radical than sin avoidance and the knowing of self that is required for such transformation is much deeper. Knowing our sinfulness becomes most helpful when we get behind the sins to our core sin tendencies. Now we shift our focus from behavior to the heart. And if you, if, if you want to know yourself, if you want to know yourself really well, who God created you to be, but especially who you now are, if you want a really healthy self-knowledge, well, man, you, you need to know that you're loved, deeply loved. But you also need to know that you're a sinner, a very unique sinner, and at some point in time, you need to begin to see behind your surface sins. You need to begin to see your very unique core sin tendencies. Your, your very deep and very unique sin roots. And now, uh, then you're getting to know yourself a little bit better. And your transformation now into the image of Jesus can happen much more quickly. I hope you can see maybe how lots of professing Christians don't actually know themselves all that well. 
We see the surface sins. How much do we really see about those deep roots underneath our sins? And we chase the external sins and try to avoid the external sins. But they're coming from someplace. You do what you do because you want what you want. You have internal desires that are warring, that are fighting. You've got internal things going on. And knowing yourself deeply by the power of the Holy Spirit, it involves beginning to see those unique core sin tendencies, those deep roots. It's so important for our spiritual health and growth. And listen, that, that, that right there is, is what the Holy Spirit has been doing for both Molly and me uh, over the last year or so, uh, especially this past summer, uh, he's been allowing us to see some deeper heart roots. Uh, very painful to see. And so good. Oh my word. Life changing. Good. So good for me. And I'm going to tell you some of my story. This morning, I spent a lot of time this summer just feeding on God's love for me. It was so good for me. My heart was being opened up much more to the love of God. I was beginning, it was beginning to go much deeper in my heart. And yet at the very same time, it it seemed like the Holy Spirit kind of turned me around, opened my eyes, and let me see some of this stuff in my heart. I, I truly, this summer, I truly did have a bit of an aha moment. Like, oh my word, wow, I'd never seen it the way I saw it this summer. I suddenly saw one in particular, one very big, massive root in my heart. One of, if not the biggest core sin tendencies in my entire life. I can, I can now see how so many of the surface sins in my life can be traced back down to this one big root, and I want to tell you about it. Why? Not because it's fun to tell you about it, I <laughs> know. Well, one reason is because it's part of my healing. It's part of my own My own healing. A big part of our healing as Christians, a big part of our transformation is tied to our honesty. John talks there in 1 John 1 about walking in the light. And man, that that means among other things that we walk in truthfulness. That we walk in authenticity with with one another and with God. It means we don't hide who we are. And John says there in 1 John 1 that when we do walk in the light, guess what? We have genuine fellowship with God. You know why? Because God doesn't have fellowship with fake people. He doesn't have fellowship with those who pretend. If you want genuine, deep fellowship with God, be honest. And John goes on and he says we don't just have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with other people. You get to know me. And, John says, the blood of Jesus then cleanses us from all sin. We're healed as we walk in the light, as we walk in in truth. And I want to be healed. This is an opportunity where I get to walk in the light with you. That's not the only reason I'm going to tell you about this. You know another reason? I just want to praise God. Because, man, God, by showing this thing to me, oh, my word, it's just worked an incredible miracle in my life. And God does those things for us, not so we can be quiet about those but so that we can turn around and praise God to other people about what he has done for us. It's a chance for me to boast in my weaknesses as a pastor. It's a chance for me to remind you that your lead pastor here, just like you, is a very imperfect person. As a pastor, I I really like Zach Eswine, wrote a book called The Imperfect Pastor, and he tells a story in there. He preached a long time, pastor a long time, and, and the Lord just broke him. And he had another pastoral um, opportunity then in his life. And the first sermon he preached at that new church, he stepped up and he preached barefoot. And it was a simple reminder to them, your pastor has feet of clay just like you. Imperfect just like you. And if I don't share my imperfections with you, you end up thinking the goal in life is for you to become perfect someday and you hide your imperfections. And that's not going to help you. And it's not going to help me. So here it goes. Let me tell you what I saw in my life. I started noticing in my life a few years ago some things that I would call bad fruit. 
Now, I've told you about them from the pulpit. And listen, most of you have tasted these things on me anyways. You've been around me enough. You've tasted some of these things. Now, I'm not talking bad fruit like, oh, disqualified from eldership, bad fruit. I'm not talking about that. Nothing like that. But bad fruit, I was saying things like anger, irritability, impatience, working too hard, working too long. Striving in anxious toil, hopelessness, despair. Those things have actually been in my life for a long time. But I didn't start to see them as clearly as I started to a year ago. I really didn't know why these bad fruits were there. I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. They just kept showing up in all kinds of situations. All these these things, I would confess them to people. Anger, irritability, impatience, you go down the list. I would confess them to people regularly, but it didn't seem to really solve the problem. It just felt like they were coming from some deep place in my soul, but I didn't know how to get down there to figure out where they were coming from. I talked with Molly about it. I, I, I would tell her all the time, just feel, I feel like I need God to prune my soul. I need him to peel the onion in my soul and get down to some deep stuff that are causing these surface Sin. So, man, I just started praying regularly that Jesus would prune me very deep. And about a year ago, maybe, Jesus did begin to connect a few dots for me. It felt like he was beginning to show me some, some deeper stuff. I was, I was processing it with Molly. I was processing a little with, with the elders who are just such good friends of mine. I, I talked with you about it some from the pulpit. Go back and listen to my sermon called Pruning or something like that, John 15, a year ago, and you'll hear me talking about some of these things. And I was helped by so many people around me. Listen, please, you don't ever want to go on an inward journey by yourself. That's where people get into problems. By themselves, navel-gazing, morbid self-introspection. We weren't made to do that. You, You were made to discover yourself in the body of Christ. People who can see you and speak truth to you and who can love you and care for you. And that was happening for me. These people loving me. And the things I was sharing with them, they were confirming with me. Yeah, that may be part of what's going on in, inside of you. And, and, and through that processing of things over time, I was beginning to get a little deeper insight into the reasons why I might pr- be producing some of those fruits. I still couldn't see it yet. Even right before last spring, before I went into sabbatical, I wrote in my journal that it still felt like I was staring into this murky pool to some degree. I couldn't yet see to the bottom with clarity. I couldn't figure out why I was doing what I was doing. But man, on our sabbatical this summer. Thank you for it. Thank you for the gift of that painful thing in my soul. <laughs> but man, on sabbatical this summer, I saw it. I, I saw it by the grace of God. Now, I don't think I've seen all of it, but I saw a massive chunk of it uh, by the grace of God so clearly. And Jesus used a number of things over my sabbatical to do it. You may not know this, but one of the gifts this church gave to Molly and me during our sabbatical was some sabbatical coaching. There's a Christian ministry called Cross Point Ministries, just a, a bunch of uh, men who pastored a long time and now they're full-time counselors. And one of the things they do is sabbatical coaching for pastors and, and their wives. Uh, so our church gifted us with that. And every two to three weeks, Molly and I had this one-hour video call as we moved around the country with this just kind and, and gracious and very insightful older pastor named, named Jim. And, and, and Jim just began to help Molly and me 
think through some things, think through our own relationship, and think through our nuclear family, our extended families, think through my job as, as, as a pastor. We looked at how we grew up, we looked at the way we are now. It was just lots of really good soul care for us, which we, we you know, just desperately needed. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, Jim asked us to do was to take this personality profile called the Enneagram. It's, it's similar uh, maybe to the Myers-Briggs personality. Uh, many of you have probably taken that, uh, uh, except the, the Enneagram has more Christian roots. It's been used by Christians for thousands of years. Uh, it, it's based off of the nine fruits of the Spirit. And according to this Enneagram test, they, they would say that there are nine basic personality types uh, rooted in the nine fruits of the Spirit. And each of the nine personality types has particular gifts and particular weaknesses. And each of those personality types has a particular particular besetting sin and an underlying core passion uh, within it. And the test is really just trying to help you unmask your besetting sin and core passion or emotion that kind of drives you. There's no power in personality tests. We get that. But God has a way of using little tools at times. And man, God use that in our lives. So Molly and I, we did this coaching, took this test, spent lots of time this summer in the Word and, and in prayer, talking with one another, communing with Jesus, uh, asking Jesus to do a deep work in our hearts, to spend over a week in solitude, just praying and and um, being with Jesus. Man, near the end of our sabbatical, I seriously had this sort of aha moment, sitting on my back deck one morning reading and praying and and I suddenly saw this massive heart root, this core sin tendency that has, I believe, dominated my life to some degree. And I could see those surface sins, what it had produced. Part of what sparked it, in all honesty, was this personality test. I didn't pay attention to the results when I first got them. I've taken so many of those tests. I didn't pay attention uh, to to it when I first got them. For those of you who might be possible with or or familiar with the Enneagram, my personality, I fell into uh, what what would be called the personality number one, not because it's better. Yeah, let's just say it's better than the others. Uh, we'll just go with that. So I got, I got number one, so I'm pretty much going to go to heaven, maybe tomorrow. Uh, I've arrived at perfection. Uh, so I got, to, I got this, number, this number one, they said, personality style, and I actually ended up taking it twice <laughs> just to make sure. Uh, it didn't mean a lot to me. It was called, my personality style was called the reformer or, or the good person. I've always known I was a great person. That's not telling me anything new, man. Uh, so it didn't mean a lot to me. But man, as I was processing through things later in the summer, I started to read up on my supposed personality. And man, I'm telling you what, in the description that I was reading, there was actually something that hit me like a ton of bricks. Right there on my back deck, it was the word perfectionist. It said that someone with my personality feels the deep down need to be perfect in everything. It said that the deep down lie that number ones believe is this. I cannot make a mistake. I must be perfect. I must be a really good person at all times and in every way. And listen, it was that needs to be perfect phrase that kind of blew me up. And I just, for the next several weeks, just began to pray and think and talk with Molly, talk with others. And as I did that, so much, I think, in my life began to open up. And I will say today, That right there, a deep down perfectionism has been a dominant and a very destructive theme in my life. I believe it is one of, if not the deepest and biggest roots in my heart 
which has produced lots of pain in my life. It has produced pain in other people's lives. It has produced lots of different surface sins. It's deep down belief that I must be perfect. Cannot make a mistake. Must be a really good person at all times in every way. I think it started when I was young. What they say is a lot of times, you know, you, God, yes, gifts you with a certain personality. You can do things. You, you, you know, you find things that are good, f- that, that, that you can do well. And you kind of run with those things. And all of a sudden, those things you can do, they kind of become your safety in this life. And I think I learned at an early age, I could do some things pretty well. And that became my safety. I do think it was modeled for me, this thing too. My dad just passed away last spring, loved him a ton. But my dad modeled a perfection to me that was not helpful for me. He was a very big figure in in my life, seemed to be good at, at everything. Owned his own real estate company, was a politician, a great athlete, was witty, he was intelligent. He seemed to me at an early, early age to be close to perfect. And the thing about my dad, all my love for him, my father hid his imperfections till the day he died. Till the day he died, he had such a difficulty owning any weakness whatsoever. One, is, one of the biggest pains in my life with my dad, I never saw his brokenness. Well, I saw it. But he would never own it and just talk with me about it. He's just modeling perfection for me. Seemed close to to perfect. And my mother (laughs) seemed to be a really good person. Spiritually, morally. She comes from a long line of pastors on her family. They're good people, these people. Love them. Really good. And I think that combination... Of what seemed to be a perfect dad, a really good man, a really good mom. I I think I came to believe at a very early age that my way to create safety in this life for myself, my way to earn affirmation and blessing, my way to be loved was to be perfect. To be perfect at everything. I did be a really good person. And you know, a ch- little child, I, I don't have Jesus. He, he's, I can't find him at this point when I'm young to be my safety, my refuge. I don't hear the affirmation from him, the blessing from him. So like any child, we try to create it for ourselves. How can I get safety? How can I get affirmation? How can I get blessing in my life? How can I do this? And for me, it landed on me very quickly. Be perfect. Be perfect. Just do all things really, really well, and you'll have those things in your life. You will be safe. You will be blessed. You will be loved. You will be affirmed. You will have people's attention. People will desire you. People will choose you. People will include you. Be perfect. I know that just resonated in my heart when I was young. And I'm going to tell you what, this perfection thing, it worked to some degree. Because I was good at some things as a little child. I was good in school. I always got good grades. My teachers really liked me. I was good at sports. I knew how to dribble a basketball at the age of two. I was good in church. I was quiet. I was shy. I was obedient in everything I did. And, 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 and it created a measure of safety for me. Love, affirmation. People liked me, affirmed me, gave me attention. And when I wasn't good or wasn't perfect at something, things went in the other direction. I didn't have the affirmation, the blessing. I didn't feel safe at all. I have a very vivid memory from first grade just etched into my mind. You know those memories. They just, for some reason, they just won't go away. Do you know you remember what you remember most of the time because there's emotion attached to that? And it's the emotion that causes you to remember this thing. Well, I got a memory etched in my mind. First grade, my first baseball game ever. My dad said he had to work, wouldn't be able to come. But when I was heading to the plate to hit for the first time ever in my life, I saw out 
in the parking lot in Centerfield, my dad's red convertible drive up. He got out and he leaned on the Centerfield fence. He had come. And I struck out in three pitches. And my dad got in his car and left. He didn't mean anything by that at all. He had to work. It was a blessing that my dad could come at all. But I'm going to tell you what, that did something in my heart. I went back to the dugout and I bawled like a baby. And for the next couple of years, playing baseball, whenever I would strike out, I would bawl in the dugout. I was the only kid on my team (laughs) crying when he struck out. Now, I've joked with my kids and said, hey, kids, I only struck out twice my entire life, so I didn't cry all that much, but (laughs) that's a lie. I struck out four times, and uh, so, yeah. It just did something, I think, in my heart. I, I do think that kind of a core belief was planted probably in my heart at that time, and the core belief was strike out and dad leaves. Hit the home run and dad stays. And you have his affirmation, his blessing, his love. And I do think it went deep. I remember lying about a year later on the floor in my upstairs hallway. My dad was right there and I was just sobbing. I was feeling all this pressure now with sports. I'm like second grade and I'm telling my dad, you won't love me if I do bad. And my dad's like, are you kidding me? I'll love you always. But I just couldn't hear it. The thing had penetrated my heart. I cannot make a mistake. I must be perfect. And I did start striving harder and harder to be perfect, to be a really good person at everything. And I did learn to hide my imperfections. If you're going to be perfect, that's what you got to do. And all the brokenness I had in my life as a child, all the many different ways in my young years that I might have acted out sinfully, I hid it all from everyone until I was in my 20s probably. And listen, somewhere along the lines, I met Jesus. I knew that I was imperfect. I knew it in my heart. I turned to Jesus in faith. I knew I was forgiven. Jesus was now in my heart, but this perfectionism was still deep in my bones. And even though you become a new creation in Christ, you're not healed from those things instantly. And man, it kicked into high gear in college. I was striving to be perfect in everything. I hated my college experience because of how much anxious toil and strife to be good at everything there was in my life. I was striving now as a college baseball player, working out all the time, trying to be the best. I was striving to be perfect as a pre-med student. I was striving to be perfect as a Christian now. I was just driven to be perfect and burning out all the time and then getting up and, and trying it again. I haven't told very many people this. I had tremendous performance anxiety. It's a miracle I'm a preacher. (laughs) No, it's an absolute miracle I'm a preacher. The amount of performance anxiety I had before speeches, suffocating for me. When I played college baseball, whenever we had our big games, we played a lot of uh, Division I top teams. We were sixth in the country at one point. We play all these Division I teams. When we had a big game that night, I would feel like I was choking. Just this, this, this pressure on me. Why? Because I wasn't playing baseball just to have fun. I was playing baseball for my very value and identity in this life. I was playing, playing baseball to be safe. To be firm, to be blessed, and you're not that all that stuff's not supposed to hang on baseball. I hated the game I grew up loving. I hated it. And man, all this hard work to be perfect in every area of your life, guess what? Looks so good on the surface. You just look like you're a hard working person. You're, you're just a dutiful person. Man, look at that guy. He worked hard. He's just trying to please other people. He's trying to please the Lord. Man, you, you can get strokes for doing that. But I'm telling you what, a lot of my labor was a twisted sort of self-love. I was doing it to be affirmed, love, to create a measure of safety, security for myself. And man, this perfectionism, this perfectionism of, of this personality that I got, 
It doesn't just impact the way you do what you do. You got to do it perfectly. It also impacts what you even choose to do in your life. Because you have to make the perfect choice. The perfect career. The perfect mate. There's a reason I didn't get married till I was 35. You operate not just according to the things you want to do in this life. You operate according to the things you think you should do in this life. You ought to do in this life. Because people's expectations are on you or because you think God's expectations are on you. You're operating under all of these oughts and these shoulds just slaving underneath those things. I know that feeling very, very well. Just continued in my life through physical therapy school. I'm in physical therapy school. I dialed back from pre-med school. I was, getting, I was beginning to see, that doesn't fit me. Why am I doing that? Pulled back a little bit from it. Even in PT school, highest GPA in, in, in my PT class. And I don't say that to boast. I was striving. Why? I, I was just striving in there to get this thing. It continued on when I went to seminary. I had a growing family. I was working 20 hours on the side. I was preaching just about every Sunday, and I was still getting up at 4 a.m. in seminary, reading every page they told me to read, which nobody was doing in seminary. (laughs) And I graduated with the highest GPA again. Not saying that to boast, because I look at it now and say, that was killing me. That was killing me. It was harming my family, harming my kids, harming people around me continued into my pastoral ministry. This deep down drive to be perfect, a perfect pastor, good at everything. You know, I'd seen it to some degree. I'd seen it a little bit in my life and kind of controlled it. I don't think it's as terrible as it could have been. But man, not like I see it now, this drive to be this perfect pastor. And here's the thing about people with my personality, kind of the ones or something, whatever that is. Listen, those who feel this perfection thing, it's not just that they feel the need to be perfect themselves. They also feel the need to make everything around them perfect. Because you see the good. You see some sort of standard, some sort of perfect standard. And you strive for it yourself and you want to see other people attain that perfect standard there is a good side to my personality they would call it the reformer that's the name of it the reformer and you can see that a reformer is just somebody who can see the good can see where something's broken can see the good and will work to help make that good and when i'm healthy hey that's a beautiful thing see the brokenness in a church and work to make it better it's this idealist thing that i know is in me I can see the ideal out there and work hard toward that ideal. They would say that people like Paul and Augustine, Luther, Calvin have that type of personality. See the broken and work toward it. Work toward that perfection. I think it's helped me in the church to some degree. You get vision. You, I think I can see where our church can go and work towards it. Here's the big problem. Here it is. You ready? Do you know what the underlying core emotion or passion 401 is that I've just learned this summer. Anger. Anger. Because nothing and no one is ever perfect. Including myself. World doesn't become perfect. The church doesn't become perfect. The mess in my house doesn't become perfect. <laughs> I'll keep striving over that one. <laughs> and I never become perfect, man. I see the ideal, which is fine and good, but nothing ever reaches the ideal, which is incredibly painful. So I work harder on myself and on the church and on other people to see to see things move in that direction. And when they don't get there, there there's this internal anger. And just, man, it's, I want to call it frustration. It's not frustration. It's anger. It, it, it's in there. Why won't this thing work? But that's not acceptable for a good person, so you repress it. <laughs> you hide it and don't act angry, and then it leaks out 
on people in different ways. Here's the thing. My strongest anger is always towards myself. You don't know that about me. Probably. It is. It would say about my personality style that we would have the harshest inner critic. The harshest. Beating myself up on a regular basis. Never good enough. Never perfect enough. I don't show you that. But I feel it. I don't show you how many times I sit down after preaching and just beat the tar out of myself. It wasn't good. It was too long. It was whatever it is. doesn't matter. It's in there. And you know, you know what we all do to some degree? Is we take the way we feel about ourselves and we project it on God. If you're angry towards yourself, you're irritable, you're impatient with yourself, you think you are a disappointment, you will project that onto God and think He feels that way about you. Angry, irritable, impatient, you're a disappointment. And I have felt that way at times about God. Thomas Merton once said, he said, God created us in His image, And then we turned around and returned the favor and created God in our image. And I know I've done that in my life. My personality is hypersensitive. It is. I've seen it. Yeah, I hope it makes sense to you. When you have a very harsh inner critic inside that is already beating the tar out of you, and someone writes you a critical email or speaks a critical word, you almost can't handle it. I've already been beating myself up about that. And we're always striving to be better. That's me. One of the titles for my personality is Striver. (laughs) Striver. (laughs) Driven. Not respecting my human limits. Grinding. You know what happens we strive long enough and hard enough to get something into a better place, us or a church or other people or something, and it doesn't happen. You know where we eventually go? You know where I've gone in my life? Despair. Hopelessness. Depression. Especially in my 20s. And there's an internal pain that goes with it. It's just there. It's an internal pain, this striving, this grinding under oughts and shoulds, never measuring up. Internal pain. You know what you learn to do in your life? You learn to medicate the pain. When I was younger, I would medicate it by TV, movies, alcohol, sex. Didn't matter. Trying to medicate some pain. You can look at those things. Well, man, you've got to deal with those sins. Yeah, but you've got to deal with the root. And the root was I was in some serious pain. And I think self-inflicted. Can I tell you where, that's tough, you know, can I tell you where my perfectionism is triggered now as a pastor? Most. Getting ready to preach to you. Getting ready to preach to you every week. Week in, week out. I love standing up here and preaching to you. I hate getting ready for it. Because that, that, that to me is like a perfect storm. We come down a stream of churches where preaching is so important. Yes, amen, good. That's hard for me. Oh, it's really, really important. I'm a very thorough person by nature. My perfectionism makes me over thorough. I feel in my heart that I have to be perfect in my sermons to be safe. I just do. You can tell me not to feel like that. It's not going to help me, really. Jesus is the only one who can help me. I feel it. I went to the elders recently after sabbatical, and I said, I need help. When I get ready for sermons, if you leave me an open-ended amount of time to prepare for the sermons, I will overwork. I can't stop. I need your help. It's so humbling. 
there feels like there's more shame in, 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 in admitting that to, than to admitting if I had gone out and committed adultery or something. Such a shame to tell you, I just, I, I just, it kills me. Man, my brothers, the elders, just rallied around. What do you need? I said, put boundaries on me. Please, just gracious boundaries. This is as long as you, you can work. That's all we want you to do, and enough is enough. Oh, my word, are you kidding? Somebody telling me to stop is like just water for my soul. You can stop. It's okay. We love you. You can stop. So just to let you know, my brothers have graciously put really good boundaries on me. I'm not used to those boundaries. So if I get up and kind of wander around when I'm preaching like I am right now, <laughs> just know I didn't overwork to do it. And just praise God with me. And be gracious with me as I get used to it. Because it's such a better rhythm for me in my life. And you put all that together. Jesus has done an amazing work in my heart. Do you remember the surface fruits I told you about? That I was seeing a year ago? Anger, impatience, irritability, working too hard, too long, striving in anxious toil, hopelessness, despair. Oh my word. Not seeing the root of it. And I think I can see a massive root behind all of that. I feel the need in my heart that I have to be perfect. I can just feel it. And here's the thing. The gospel heals me there. See, sometimes the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about Jesus and his healing, it just bounces off your surface because you're not getting into the deep part of your soul. But God wants to drive the gospel deep. And what does the gospel say to me and this thing in my heart that says I need to be perfect? The gospel says Jesus is perfect. He is your perfection, Brett. And in all of your imperfection, Brett, in all of your imperfect sermons, in all of your imperfection, you're safe in Christ. He is your refuge. He delights in you. He takes joy in, in you, Brett. You are okay in Christ. You, Brett, are perfect in Christ. And that heals me. I can feel it in my soul. God has driven that thing so, so deep. Molly understands me so much better. I can be honest with her when I get anxious or fearful. Man, he's, Jesus has done an amazing thing in my heart. And he's the answer. I'm realizing I'm accepted in him. Even with this thing that drives me to be perfect. He accepts me. You know what it comes back around to then? I got to remember I'm loved. Again, the primary thing. He loves me just as I am. And it's that love for me through Christ, the gospel that, man, I just feel it changing me. Walking in the light with my brothers, with my wife, with other people. Walking in the light with you today. This is good for me. This is not, this is not perfection. <laughs> Coming and sharing all my imperfections, but it's so healing and good for me to do it. Thank you for listening. And, and here's, here's kind of where I'm going. You have the same type of thing going on inside of you. Every last one of you. A very unique something in your soul. That is driving you. What is your driving want? Your driving need? You need to be successful. You need, you need to, 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 to be loved, be needed. What is it? You got it. And I think I'm just telling you a lot of this day for my healing and also to let you know that as a church, we're going to kind of be doing some things that might be able to help you discern a little bit more what's going on deep in your soul. Uh, I think it'll be really good for you and to see that gospel penetrate you. You're a unique sinner and the gospel will hit you in a very unique, unique way. So be ready for that. Thank you for listening to me. Know that you are loved. 
know that you are a sinner. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, your kindness to us in Christ. I just thank you for an opportunity to be honest today. I see these things in my soul. And uh, Lord, you've seen them for a long time. I believe you're really pleased with me right now. Just boasting in my weaknesses. I thank you for people who love me. Uh, I thank you, Father, for the gospel that penetrates deep hearts, not just in my heart, but in all of our hearts. I do ask that you would do it. I ask right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that, Lord, you would begin to prune the hearts of the people in front of me. I know you've already done that for some people here deeply, others not much, and I just ask that you would do it. And you begin to help us turn around and see our deep core sin tendencies. And you would help us, dear God, help us drive us to the cross, to Jesus. We thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.